0: I need to start planning this with shorter pieces on Communion Sunday. I've recognized this now, but your endurance is inspiring to me. But we are in the beginning phases of this worship series that is both responsive to called general conference and what has happened and the call of our bishop to not lose sight of our focus which is the great commission to go forth and make disciples of all nations all peoples and baptize and teach them in the name of the father son and holy spirit and so the theme for annual conference for the Virginia annual conference this year that's being held in Roanoke next month is the great commission and we thought it would be fitting our worship leadership team to use that to both maintain focus and also to bring us back together because no matter where we find ourselves in the political spectrum or where we differ in nuances and theology and doctrine at the end of the day and the beginning of the next one we are Christians and we believe that we are held together by God's grace and that we are all loved and forgiven through the sacrifice and the love of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so this is where we find our binding. This is where we stay committed to one another and to the course. And this is what our worship service and our series here are designed to do, to help us remain centered and focused on Christ and our ultimate mission. So as we do that, we are focusing today on an unlikely disciple. In fact, he's so unlikely that he has to have a dramatic encounter in order to bring him to the light side of Jesus Christ. And most of you may be familiar in concept with the transformation of Saul, who will become known as the Apostle Paul, but you might not know all the little nuances in the story, and so we're going to look at that today and what that has to do with not only our own calling as disciples of Jesus Christ, but what we're supposed to do now moving forward in this world to build the kingdom here in Crozet and at the ends of the earth. So Saul was a very good Jew. In fact, he would have been heralded as an icon. Here was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. He was a Talmudic scholar. He knew his Torah inside and out. He knew the law. He applied the law. He was a champion of his faith, and he was such a champion of the faith that he recognized that this early divergence of Christianity from Judaism was possibly a heresy. And so he started to—well, the Christian word would be persecute. On his side, they were, they were cleansing but on our side it was received as persecution and he was so effective at it at purging and cleansing on the Judaism side in Jerusalem that he was given authority and autonomy to continue that work outside the gates of Jerusalem And as he was heading to Damascus. In the early days, the apostles remained in Jerusalem, and there they continued to build the kingdom, to preach the good news, and to proclaim that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but had died and was risen and resurrected and ascended into heaven. And the gospel was beginning to gain traction, people were becoming Christians. And at some point, they ceased to be Jews and became kind of totally separate Christians. And as they were migrating and making this shift, that was when the powers that be, the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, begin to condemn them. As you have gone outside the breadth of Judaism, and you are now preaching against us and encouraging Jews to become Christians, and they were against that. And so they started to put up opposition to this trend. And Paul was one of those. Of course, at this point, his name is Saul. And he was very good young man, very good at this. And he was even present, as the book of Acts records, for the stoning of St. Stephen. And there he was respected. They laid their coats at his feet. He was not only a witness, but you could, you can read in the text that he probably had power and authority there. And now he is taking that power and authority out to Damascus. And he's gotten a, not only a personal audience with the chief priest, but he's gotten authorization to act on his behalf. And so he does what all of us do if you're going to go and cause some trouble you take friends with you. So he and his friends, these other men, are on their way to Damascus to do exactly what was done to Jesus in Jerusalem, that he will be, uh, those that they encounter will be arrested, they will be bound, brought back to Jerusalem, so that ultimately, like Stephen, they can probably be stoned to death. This is a death sentence. They're out on a murder brigade. And as they continue this work, the text even tells us that he had permission to bring not only men, but women. Interesting how inclusive we get when it's talking about persecution. And so he is on his way to Damascus and suddenly there is this blinding light from the heavens and he loses his sight and he hears his name being called out. And the question is, why are you persecuting me? Now the response may be, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your wayward disciples, these people who are perverting our faith, the the covenantal faith of Sinai, that which came from the patriarchs from all the way back in the Torah, they have deviated, they have strayed, I'm not persecuting you, I'm trying to correct them and get them to either be cleansed or eradicated. It's hard for us as Christians to think that if we are not in a right relationship with another person, even one within the church, that we are actually persecuting Jesus. That makes our pettiness seem a lot worse than it is, doesn't it? But yet that's exactly what Jesus says twice. Why are you persecuting me? If you are hurting my people, if you are lashing out against my disciples, you are persecuting me, even if we are one of Jesus' disciples. If we start taking shots and putting ourselves in open, hostile, adversarial relationships with another Christian, we are persecuting Jesus, and that doesn't sit well. And so Paul finds himself in this moment here. Saul is about to encounter just how powerful Jesus Jesus is. So as he loses his sight and he hears this call that you are now going to go into Damascus and you're going to wait and I will tell you what to do. It's always wonderful when the the person that you think is the cause of all your problems suddenly becomes your boss. And that's exactly what just happened to Saul. Here Jesus has now become not only his power and his authority over him, but is now dictating to him what he should do. And he does it because he has now been wounded, he has been disabled, he is now blind. And his friends, thank goodness they're there, have to carry him and help lead him into the city. And there they stay at the house of Judas. And then our story gets really interesting. Because while Saul is convalescing in Judas' house, God calls out through the voice of Jesus to Ananias. And Ananias, it says, is a disciple in Damascus. And the Lord says to him, I need you to go and do this. I need you to go to this house on this street, and there you will find Saul. And he's been struck blind, and I need you to lay hands on him and help him receive his sight. He's already seen that this is going to happen because he's praying. He's not just hanging around, woe is me. He's praying. And Ananias, like all of us, says, are you crazy? Do you know who this guy is? We don't often focus on the fact that as a disciple in Damascus, Paul was coming for him. Paul was coming for Ananias. And if if he was married and his wife was a Christian, then he was coming for her too. He was coming for their friends and their family, their brothers and sisters in Christ, the church that was beginning to take root and maybe even start to see some flourishing there in Damascus. He was coming for those people. And then God says to the one who would have been bound and led back to Jerusalem, tried and perhaps even murdered, I need you to go and show grace and love to this guy. Most of us would be like, oh no, 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 absolutely not. Are you crazy? You this person hates me. This person was out to destroy me. He has destroyed other Christians. He has hurt not only my heart, my head, but my spirit. And you want me to show this guy grace. You better find somebody else, Lord, because I don't have that kind of grace in me. But Ananias doesn't do that. He does say, just want to make sure, Jesus, you know who we're talking about here. Just make it sure it's biblically okay. Even the Virgin Mary was like, how is this happening It's okay to ask a question, just don't be impertinent when you do it. And so he makes this little qualifying statement, and the Lord's response is, no, this is the way it's going to be. I have chosen him. I have chosen Saul, and I will perform through him. I will show my power. I will transform. I will bring about newness. Because Paul, by virtue of who he is, both as a, as a Roman citizen and as a Pharisaic Jew, has the ability to bring the gospel before those that otherwise would not have heard and received it. And so his ability to enter into closed doors and closed-off spaces is going to be part of why he is going to be such an effective apostle for Jesus Christ. And Ananias could still go, nope, not doing it, but instead... He is determined to go and do what Jesus asks of him. And as he enters into the house, the most powerful, profound moment there is that he lays hands on Saul. He puts his hands on his would-be murderer. Now, as a Pharisaic Jew, Paul would not, Saul would not have wanted Ananias to lay hands on him. It's possible that living as a Christian disciple already, he would have been considered unclean, not keeping kosher. And so for an unclean person to put hands on a Jew would have been Hadad, it would have been absolutely a breach of protocol. It would have been to violate some purity code, and it would have been very rude. But he does it. He lays hands on Saul, and then he addresses him as brother, brother Saul. Not this guy or, all right, I'm just going to do this and get this over with and get the heck out of here. But no, my brother, I am embracing you. I am accepting you. I am here with you. He chooses to address him as brother Saul and says to him, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only is he allowing himself to be part of the healing that Saul will encounter, but he is going to share some of the Holy Spirit. He is a vessel of God's goodness and grace, and he is about to give it to his mortal enemy. He is choosing this rather than antagonism he is choosing this rather than to continue the fractured relationship the hostilities he chooses to let god have god's way and that is hard for us to hear in the church that sometimes we have to step back and let god have god's way because some of us grew up in the church. Maybe some of you grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. My dad was a lifer in the United Methodist Church out in Missouri or Missouri, depending on where you're from. And my mother was born into the Southern Baptist Church, but not baptized until she was a teenager. And she grew up in southeastern Virginia, out in a little place place called Deep Creek, Chesapeake, where Southern Baptist roots have grown very deep and are very firm. And when she met my father and they decided to get married, she was introduced to Methodism. And like all good people, was like, I have seen the light. And so she became a Methodist. And I was born and raised in the Methodist church, baptized there, confirmed there, grew up in the youth group and all of this. And... I don't really know what it's like to be outside of the church. I mean, sure, I would attend other Christian denominational services with my friends. You know how it is when you go to a sleepover the next morning is Sunday, and you go to whoever's church hosted. Um, So I did that. I have a a non-Christian religious studies degree from William and Mary, and so I've explored other religions in that way from a very scholastic and sometimes experiential, but never really from a desire to actually worship that way. And so for me, it's been Methodism my whole life, and it's hard for me to understand exactly what is going on when you have this kind of powerful 180-degree turning that Saul experiences. Because I grew up in this. This is who I was. And so for me, when people go, when was that moment? I don't know. I think my whole life has been a series of moments that make one giant transformation story. But to pinpoint a moment like Saul has is very foreign and alien for me, and it might be for you too. But there are others in the body of Christ who have those moments where they didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow up with the faith the way they now have it. And so they can pinpoint that moment when everything seemed to turn on the axis the other way, and all of a sudden they knew Jesus Christ in a powerful and transformative way that they did not before. And there is a place in the kingdom for both of those narratives. There is an important role for all of that because one says that you truly can walk with God all of your days, and the other says that it's never too late. And both of those are important in the life of the church. But don't be confused. Just because I was born and raised in the church does not mean that I am not intimately acquainted with sin. I certainly know my way around sin, and like many people encounter, the older we get, especially when we get to be more a little autonomous and more empowered, sometimes we find that when God is telling us to do something, it feels much better, safer, and easier to go with secular sin. We turn away from what God wants and we embrace what the world offers us because what God is saying to us is terrifying. We find ourselves like Ananias. I want you to go and do something this powerful. And we think to ourselves, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I was fine when you were like occasional potlucks in Sunday morning worship. The second you started telling me you wanted to go out in the heat in August out in the Appalachian hills and you want me to start building things with a hammer and nails, God, I'm tapping out. But yet, this is precisely what God is saying, that there comes a time in every disciple's life that we have to recognize that we have to turn away from our sin and embrace the way of discipleship And Ananias came to that moment as Saul was having his moment of encountering Jesus Christ. Their two stories unite here. And ours are no less distinctive like that in the church. There are those of us who have been lifers, who have been in this church church so long that we can't remember or recall anything else. And then there are those of us who this still feels very new and raw and strange and other. And all of us are wrestling with sin all of us, in our own way, with our own sinful compulsions, with our own sinful inclinations, we are wrestling. And the story today reminds us that the one constant in both narratives is Jesus Christ. The one singular union is that Jesus Christ loves and accepts both of those trajectories and not only walks with them and talks to them, but brings them together for the good of the world. And so the story today reminds us that in the calling we have to make a decision, whether we choose to be part of the kingdom-building process. Well, I told you I'm not a stranger to sin. Grew up in the church. I got my call to ministry at the age of 17, and I didn't even tell my parents because they were such good Christians in my eyes that I thought if I told them they were going to make me take the call. Right? Have you ever been at home and the phone rings and you're like, "Who is it?" And they tell you, and you're like, "I'm not." I was not here. I did not want to answer the phone. And so my parents, when I graduated from high school at 17, they started going, okay, well, what are your plans? And I was like, I don't know. I don't have any plans. Well, I did have plans. Up until God ruined my entire life trajectory, my plan was to be an oceanographer. I had a great plan. As you can tell, this skin tone should be baking out in the sun all day, on the high seas. God clearly knew what God was doing. And so I had my own plans. I had my own desires and my own will. And when God said, hey, I think you should do this for me, I was like, no, no. But what happened was it actually started to break apart my relationship with my parents because I couldn't even tell them. And so my parents didn't understand. They're like, why, why is she, like, not doing anything? Why is she, she want to go to college? What is she doing? So I was working as a nanny. I was taking care of my sister who's 10 years younger than me. I was stalling. Because nobody ever stalled Jesus. I was stalling. And then finally, my parents got very frustrated with me. And they said, you know, you were a good student in high school. You were a smart girl. You need to go to college. You need to go to college. You need to go to college. And finally, my father went off to work one day. And my mother said, I'm getting ready to go start my shift in the operating room. And I need you to go down to the campus at Northern Virginia Community College. And I need you to go to the registrar's office and register for classes. And like the defiant kid I was, I said, yes, yes. And I went down there in my car, and I sat in the parking lot, and I sat there for almost an hour, and I never got out of the car. And then I came home, and my mother said to me, oh, you're home. Did you register for classes? I said, no, I'm moving to New Jersey, (laughs) which is what every parent wants to hear. (laughs) And so I told my parents that I was going to New Jersey. I didn't tell them that I was running from a call because they're going, what? And they were hurt, and they were scared, and they were upset, and there were moments of anger and disbelief. And I moved to New Jersey because I had some friends there, and I did what all 19-year-olds long to do. I got a job with my own income as a bill collector, because isn't that an awesome job to have? And I was pretty good at it, because when you call people in New York and New Jersey with this voice, they're confused, and return your phone calls. And I was very effective at getting people to pay they're their bills, and, you know, but there's nasty sides of bill collecting. Like I would have to pull credit reports and repossess cars and, you know, and put together paperwork to throw liens on homes and this sort of thing. And it was not good, and it was very depressing. Um, and so I started to do what all people do. You start to look for joy and sin. And so I got a boyfriend, and I moved in with him, which really angered my Southern Baptist mother. Because when your child sins, that Southern Baptist comes right back. It resurrected. And it was hard. It was very hard. And the whole thing was that I couldn't tell her that I had a call to ministry. I couldn't tell her. And so I found myself struggling like Ananias with what God wanted me to do. Only Ananias got with the program a lot sooner than I did. I know what it is to be a lifelong Christian and to sin. I know what it is to be a lifelong united Methodist and wander from the path because you are afraid of what God is placing before you. I know what that is like. I have been the prodigal child. No 20-year-old wants to move home with their parents. And I have done that. I know what it is like to eat a large piece of humble pie and have about two and a half years of agita and the need to just constantly consume Tums and Rolades because you are living with your parents. And ultimately... What this taught me was that I am no better than someone who has spent the first 20 years of their life not in the church, not knowing Jesus Christ. Because we find ourselves at the same place in our lives. I am no better than anyone else just because I was born into United Methodism. I am no better than anybody else because I was baptized as an infant and had a piece of God's Holy Spirit residing within me from that day forward. Because I could still send away my baptism. And we are reminded constantly that the truth of the gospel is that God is never far from us. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and will return, but not far from us. And Jesus was with Saul and Ananias simultaneously, reminding them that God is for them and with them. And at that moment... Jesus could have taken out some retribution on Saul, could have given him back one eye and not the other, could have immediately struck him with something that would have been much more permanent. But his decision, his choice, his empowerment was to not only heal Saul, but to send a Christian to be with him. And that is the difference between Christianity and every other religion, is that Jesus chooses to use frail, fractured, imperfect, sinful vessels like us to reveal God's self to the world and to show grace and truth and mercy and kindness and love. And all along our trajectory, whether we are new at this or this seems like old hat to us, all along our journey and our path, God has never turned God's back on us. But there are people in this world, because of the way of the world and the the sinfulness of secularism, there are people in this world that do not think that the world is better because they are here. They think that they are anathema. They think that they are an accident. They think that they are a problem. And the Great Commission reminds us that we are here to not only open up the gates to the kingdom, build the kingdom here and invite all to come in. But we have a very specific task and that is to let people know that Christ died and rose again for them because they are loved. To remind people that Jesus chooses us when anyone else would fasa- forsake us, that Jesus chooses us despite all of our sins, despite any evil that we have manifested in this world, despite our will and our self-righteousness, that Jesus time and time again, every second, every breath, every heartbeat, chooses us. That is the gospel. That is what the gospel means. And Jesus chose the most unlikely apostle in Saul. And nobody would have picked him. Nobody in Jerusalem would have been like, this guy, we should work on this guy and bring him in. This will go well. In fact, Acts is filled with contention between the remaining 11 and Paul. They continue to struggle and butt heads. What do you mean you're going to the Gentiles? That's not part of the deal. Who told you that? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus told me that. We're going to have to talk to Jesus because we're not okay with this. These are the problems that we have because we are sinners. It doesn't matter how long we've been in the church. We are sinners. It doesn't matter how new to this Christian thing we are. We are sinners. And yet the one constant, the unifier is that grace is always ours. Whether we've been basking in it from birth and baptism or not, Grace is always ours. It gives us an opportunity to reset, to pause and rethink. That's why we take the sacrament of Holy Communion. Because Jesus, in infinite wisdom and knowledge, chose to give us a place where we can be tangibly reminded that God's grace is not only with us and for us, but sufficient for all of our sins and mistakes and all of our waywardness and all of my, wa- my wandering when I was out of high school and before I accepted my call to ministry, and all of my sinful state and my waywardness, and all of the times when I refused to listen to God or even acknowledge God, the times that I showed up in a church and came to the communion table, I came home. I came home. And if we don't take our calls as disciples to help other people recognize that this is home, Seriously, then there are people who are atrophying. They are absolutely dying and strangling in the spirit because they are starved for grace in Jesus Christ. And all of us, no matter who we are male, female, young, more vintage we all have a role to play. We don't retire. Or go on vacation because Jesus Christ never retires or goes on vacation from us. We live our lives as disciples. And some way, somehow, we live that out through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit so that other people can find their way home. They can find their way home. Some so they can find their way back. And some so they can find their way for the first time. That's what's at stake. And when we, especially in the United Methodist Church, choose to let ourselves be torn asunder, then we are risking failing in the commission. And I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to disappoint your parent, and I don't want to stand before the resurrected, risen Christ on Judgment Day and see that staring back at me. I want Jesus to look at all of us here, all of us all over who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and say, Well done, good servant. Enter into the kingdom. But we can't do that if we aren't just as committed now as that moment when we recognize that Jesus has claimed us and we claim him back. This is the day when we choose, gathered here in God's holy house, before the communion table, and in the presence of all three persons of the Trinity, to receive not only a tangible sign that God knows us and loves us and redeems us, but will stay with us and sustain us through this trial, but that we are part of this plan. We too, like Saul, are instruments, and every one of us is capable because God's power and grace is made perfect in our weakness. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.